Road. And remember, that was the day where I officially joined the team. This is week two in a series we started last week called Play to Win. In sports, if you want to win, you can't go about it with a, a blasé attitude. You have to commit yourself. You have to have intentionality and drive and pursue it with all of your heart and all of your soul, all your mind, all your strength in order to win the prize. And it turns out, from a biblical point of view, that's also how we should go about this Christian life. In fact, last week in our message, we heard a passage from the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul encourages us to win the race as those who want to win the prize. We pursue the Lord with intentionality, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We play to win. Last week, just a brief recap, we talked about a strategy, or started talking about a strategy for winning, and step one was join a winning team. We're all born into this losing team in Adam. And in solidarity with Adam, we chose to sin like Adam and reject God like Adam, and we embrace the grave like Adam. It is a team born to lose. But the good news of the gospel is that we're invited to join a winning team in Christ. It's a team where there is forgiveness, and there is renewal, and there is sanctification, and there is the promise of a championship, a victory. That's what we're pursuing. But how do we sign on to this new team? Like, how do we break this contract with Adam? How do we sign on to be in Christ? What does signing day look like for us? That's what we're talking about this morning. And believe it or not, the New Testament actually gives a pretty direct answer to that question. We find it in the book of Romans chapter 6. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6 to follow along. If you don't have your Bible, as always, the passages will be on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Mammoth app, tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find sermon notes with our passage already broken down as we're going to look at it, ready to engage with, take some notes on, and so on. So, what does signing day look like for us? Well, like we said, we're going to look at the New Testament and what it has to say, and, and really we're going to look at the language and how the ideas are related to one another. And in the New Testament, Romans chapter 6, what we find is that our union with Christ begins at baptism. The first five chapters of the book of Romans, we'll summarize those so we don't have to read them all, it's really an explanation of the gospel. A kind of a detailed explanation, really. But the summation of it is this. We don't find favor with God through performance. We just can't. Not by being good enough or following all the rules or through certain rituals. We just can't do it. We don't have it in us. The good news is we find our place in God's favor by having faith in Jesus' performance, in his righteousness, in his work on the cross. It's through faith that we receive God's grace. Wonderful, wonderful news. But it kind of raises this question if we're saved because of our, our faith, well, then what stops us from just kind of doing whatever we want to do? I mean, it's not a matter of performance, right? And as long as I believe in Jesus, then there's grace to meet my sin, so why can't I just, like, do more sin so I can have more grace? Like, well, why can't we have our cake and eat it too? That's kind of the question that they were asking in the first century. And it's a question that we still kind of ask in different ways today, and that's why Paul takes that question up, the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter, that is, he takes the question up in verse 1 of chapter 6. It reads like this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So you can see our question there in verse 1, shall we go on sinning 
so that grace may increase? Can we just keep doing more of the, the stuff we're not supposed to so that God can keep forgiving us? And the response is there in verse 2, by no means. And if we were to get our Greek New Testament out, you know, that's, that's what the New Testament was written in originally, and we were to look at the, the grammar there, what we find is this is actually an emphatic no. This isn't just like, no, guys, that's not a good idea. This is no! No way! This is an awful idea! Don't do it! And the reason that it's so emphatic is because of what follows. We are those who have died to sin. When you see like a squirrel or a possum or something dead on, well, the possum may not be dead, but if you find like a squirrel on the side of the road, nobody goes and picks it up and starts playing with it like it's some sort of little marionette, right? You know, do a little dance and have some, that's gross! That's weird! Put that down, don't mess with it. When something's dead, you don't touch it anymore. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. We died to sin. It's death to us. We put it aside. Don't go pick it up and start playing with it again. That's weird. It's gross. Leave it alone. That should be our attitude towards this. Now, before we go any further, we need to unpack a couple of ideas, uh, phrases and terms used here, just to get a fuller understanding of what's coming. Paul talks about sin here. We died to sin. What do you mean by that term? Because he uses that a couple different ways in this letter. Sometimes that word sin, it can be used to describe like specific actions or deeds that we do, like misdeeds. In this instance, though, he's really using it more to refer to sort of this power or this force that just sort of hangs over all of creation. It's this inescapable corruption that just kind of worms its way into everything. So that's what he means when he's talking about sin here. Not specific things, but sort of this overarching power at work in the world. The second thing we need to clarify is the audience here and who they are. He's writing to the church. So these are believing people. These people have put their faith in Christ. And he says that we are dead to sin, to this power, to this force. So there's a change that's happened in them. And it's not a gradual change or a process. Like if we were to look at the verbal construction, it says, we are those who have died to sin. Again, if we were to get our, our Greek New Testaments out, we'd find that this is a, what's called an aorist verb. It's a past completed action. Which means that this isn't like a process where we kind of started to die to sin and we're sort of working through it with the goal of someday hopefully dying to sin. No, it was we were alive to sin, we lived under it, and now, done. It's finished. It is complete. And we are now completely dead to this power, to this force. This is a big transformation. And it's kind of exactly what we're asking this morning. How do we break the contract on Team Adam and sign on to be in Christ? And the answer is found in verse 3 in what follows. Let's look at that. He says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, before we unpack that, I want to make it a point. He says, those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, he's not saying that there were some who were baptized and some who were not baptized in the church. There was no such thing as a dry Christian in the first century because that was the right and the ritual how you entered into this community. What he's doing is drawing attention to the one thing that he really wants to focus on that everybody has experienced. It would be like if I were to say, to those of us wearing clothes today, I say this, well, if you take a look around, that's all of us. 
right? There's not like there's some that's wearing clothes and some people are, you know, buck naked over here. That would be like in the back corner, right? You know, you got a wild bunch. <laughs> no, but like we're drawing attention to one specific detail that we've all experienced. That's what he's doing here. And this is his answer to both of these questions that's been raised this morning. Why can't we go on just kind of doing whatever we want if God's going to forgive us? He says, because there's something really special that happened at your baptism. And our question is, how do we break this contract with Adam and join Team Jesus? How do we make this transition? What signing day look like? He says, it's, it's that special thing that happened at your baptism. You see, this is a really special sacrament that we get to participate in. It kind of solidifies our union with Christ. And it, it happens in, in its kind of a mysterious way. And when I use that term, I don't mean mystery as in like, woo, Scooby-Doo kind of stuff. I mean it in the way that ancient people tended to use it. There, there's this very real thing that happens that's just beyond our capacity to explain. I don't know how it works, but it, you know, faithfully, truthfully, fully happens. That's what we mean when we talk about mystery. And this mystery is kind of twofold, the mystery of baptism. You see, through the waters of baptism, firstly, we're united with Christ in his death. When we talk about being in union with Jesus, we mean more than just verbally saying, I believe, or mentally agreeing to the ideas that Jesus and the New Testament present. When we talk about being in union, we're talking about a relationship and being in solidarity with him where he is, is my Lord and my life is so entangled and enmeshed in his that, that the pattern of my life almost tends to follow the pattern of his life. My life kind of becomes an echo of Christ and, and what happened to him. That is the tight kind of union we're talking about, right? So being in Christ, united in his death, it's that sort of solidarity. That's part of the process. Now before we unpack, what does it mean to be united with Christ in his death? Let's take a moment to make sure we understand what happened when Jesus died. Because the death of Christ was not a, a metaphorical kind of death or merely a symbolic death. It was a very real, literal death in which he stopped breathing and they put his body in a tomb and they buried him. Like there's a strong physical component here. But there's also this unseen spiritual thing happening as well. You see, Christ is a human being. He was fully God, but also fully man. He lived under the power of sin, just like every other mortal human being. And understand what I mean when I say that. I'm not saying that Jesus participated in sin, sinful acts. I'm talking about sin the way Paul just used it a minute ago. This, this force that just sort of hangs over all of creation and, and just causes issues and problems. Jesus had to deal with that, just like you and I have to deal with that. It's kind of like the smell that comes from the Smithfield plant in some ways. You know, it's this, this powerful odor that just sort of hangs over the entirety of the town. And you and I don't have to go actively engage in what happens there in order to be impacted by its pungent power, right? That's what we mean when we're talking about Jesus had to live under the power of sin as a mortal person. And the only way to escape that power is death. We're talking about sin, not the smell from Smithfield. Right. So when Jesus died, he died to the power of sin. He was released from it. That's why in chapter 6, verse 10, it's phrased very carefully how it describes the death of Jesus. It says, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. 
Now, we can't be talking about sinful acts because Jesus never participated in that to begin with. So we're talking about this oppressive power, this power that corrupts creation, that leaves our flesh subject to mortality and and all of the difficulties that come with that. He died to that power. And the life he lives, he lives to God. There's a new authority, and the only authority that Christ answers to, it's the authority of the Father that he submits himself under. So here's the two components, what happened. Jesus, he physically died, he stopped breathing, body went in a tomb, and in a spiritual sense was released from the power of sin. No longer held subject to its tyranny. That's kind of a fuller picture of what happened when Jesus died. So in verse 3, he talks about being baptized into his death. When we're in union with him, what we mean is that same thing happens in us. We go under the waters of baptism, and we stop breathing, just like he stopped breathing. And we're buried in this watery grave, the same way he was placed in that tomb and buried. And in a physical sense, our lives echo his experience. But in that same way, we also die to the power of sin. And we are released from this oppressive tyranny that hangs over us. This power that compels us to reject God and his ways. And this power that compels us to pursue self-destruction. And this power that holds mastery over our flesh and enslaves us to the grave. We're done with that. Now, it doesn't mean we're not tempted anymore. We still wrestle with this flesh. But what it means is that when sin calls our name, we don't have to answer anymore. That's that's next week's message. That's coming down the pipeline, what that looks like and how we experience that. Because just as Jesus died to sin once for all and lives to God, when we are baptized, united with him in his death, we die to sin. And the life we live, we live to a new power and a new authority. All of this gets summarized pretty succinctly if we want to look at verse 7 in chapter 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That's kind of this succinct summary of everything we've said. Through this sacrament, the mystery of baptism, we are united with Christ in his death kind of echoing his experience, not just in a a symbolic, physical death, but in this very real liberation from the power of sin in our lives. That's the day when our contract with Adam stops. But that's just half of the mystery. There's something else we've got to look at, too, the second half. You see, through baptism, we're also united with Christ in his resurrection. That's the good news. So let's look at verse 4. It says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. That's everything we just talked about. In order that, so there's a purpose for all of this, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in his death, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, the beauty of the gospel story isn't that Jesus died, was buried in a tomb, and then stayed there. That's a pretty unremarkable story. And likewise, the the wonder of baptism is not that we put you under the water and we keep you there, because that's a felony. The wonder of the gospel 
is that on the third day, Jesus was raised back to life, and that tomb was empty. And likewise, the wonder and the beauty of baptism is that you go down there. We may keep you a little down there a little longer just to make sure it takes, but everybody comes up out of the water <gasps> to gasp in a new breath. As the NIV says, to live a new life. That's not actually a real great translation, though. Again, if we were to go back, look at the Greek, and actually we can look at almost every major uh, English translation today. They do a little better job. It's more literal. It says we're raised to walk in the newness of life. And that distinction is, is subtle, but it's pretty significant. Because if we were just to live a new life like the one we used to have, there really wouldn't be that big of a difference. We'd have like this fresh start, but keep on the same path that we originally were on. What Paul says is very different. What he says is when you come up out of those waters in union with Christ and his resurrection, you have something entirely new. Like you live for the first time. The life you have in Christ can't be compared to what you had when you played on Team Adam. You might think about it like this. You, have you ever had fresh pineapple? Oh, yeah. Delicious, right? Mm. Gotta love it. Well, for a long time in my life, I never had fresh pineapple. I just had the canned stuff, and we didn't have a whole lot of money, so it was usually like the cheapest canned stuff that we could get. And like, I don't know if you've had that. It's not good. Like, it's bitter. It kind of has like this kind of metallic taste to it at times. It's a little tough, a little fibrous. I didn't like it. But that's what I thought pineapple was because that's all I'd ever known. And for years, I thought, I don't like pineapple. But then we took a trip to Mexico. And they had fresh pineapple everywhere. And everybody was just raving about the pineapple. So I thought, now nah, I'll give it another go. Ah! Oh, delicious! It's not tart. It's not metallic. It's sweet. It's supple. It's juicy. It's not like fibrous and gets stuck in your teeth. I loved it. I ate my body weight in pineapple on that trip. This can't be compared to this. This, this isn't even in the same ballpark. You can't call this pineapple anymore because the real deal is something that is infinitely superior. That's what Paul's saying here. When we played for Team Adam, when we were in solidarity with him and in, in Adam, we were subject to sin, to this power, this oppression that rules over creation. We were compelled to walk away from the God who loves us and pursues us. We were compelled to self-destruction. We had to be subject to the grave and the fear that comes along with it. This, this is not life as God intended it. But this, in Christ, where there is fellowship with the God who loves us, where there is assurance and confidence that this life just keeps on going and doesn't end because it's not subject to this tyranny of the grave and this oppression and fear of death. This life is something that is so superior to this, this can't even be called life. We have real life in union with Christ. That's what we're talking about here. Now, we may be saying, like, how does this union take place, this union with death in Christ and in life? Like I said, it's, it's a mystery. We can't explain or really don't have the capacity to say, yeah, this is how God does it and break it down mechanically. It just, it happens. But let me give you a story to maybe kind of solidify that a little bit. In 1943, there was, uh, during World War II, there were these 16 resistance fighters outside this little village in Poland that were found by a, a Nazi platoon. And they were brought into the village, and these 16 men were forced to dig their own graves. And then the commanding officer of the Nazis, he brought the whole town out to make a whole thing of it, and, and sort of in this sort of like Bond villain kind of way, would anybody 
anybody like to join them? That's kind of how I imagine it going. It was this whole thing. It was intimidation. It was to hold people subject to fear. But then these three elderly men stepped forward. And one of them kind of spoke for the other two. He said, we're old men. And we couldn't run with these young men. And we couldn't fight alongside them. And we couldn't shoot alongside them. But we want it to be made known today. We stand with them, not you. And they joined those 16 men in death. But by participating in that death in solidarity with them, they also stood in solidarity with everything those men fought for. Everything that they idealized and pursued. Freedom. Justice. Truth. What is right. It's through that symbolic act of joining in death that they also joined them in life. And that's kind of what we're talking about here with Jesus. When we go under the waters of baptism, symbolically, we are joining him in a physical death. We are joining him literally in this death to sin, and we are being raised to live as he lived. To stand for everything he stands for, righteousness in God's eyes, truth to the Father, following obediently to him, this newness of life, because we have union with him. That's the beauty of baptism. That's our signing day. When this contract with Adam breaks and this new one is forged, when we stop being in Adam and we start being in Christ, it's a beautiful day and a gift that God has given us. So the question is, do I have to be baptized? Inevitably, that's a question that comes up. And it's a question that comes up for different reasons. Sometimes, it's, it, honestly, it's just a matter of self-consciousness. I don't like being in front of people. Or I don't want to see people, you know, with my hair all wet or my makeup running or something. I just, sometimes it's a self-conscious issue. Sometimes it's a matter of traditions. You know, maybe there are different churches and different traditions of Christianity that, you know, maybe you sprinkle an infant or you, you pour in a font. Or maybe certain traditions, they, they just raise their hand or they say a certain prayer and that's how they, they become one in Christ. Sometimes it's, some non-critical thinking, we'll just say that, that sometimes goes like this. The beauty of the gospel is that we're not saved through performance, through measuring up to certain standards or through certain rituals. We're saved by grace through faith, through belief. And baptism's just a symbol of that belief and that faith, isn't it? So why is it necessary? And I would agree, baptism is a symbol. It's a wonderful symbol of our faith. But I would argue wholeheartedly it's not just a symbol. In fact, I think you could make a strong argument that no symbol is just a symbol. The reason symbols have power in our lives is because they are inherently connected to very real things. I've got a symbol on my left hand. My wedding ring. It's a symbol. It's not my commitment. It's not my vow. It's not my love. It's just a symbol. So if I lost it, my wife probably wouldn't be that upset, would she? Because it's just a symbol. Or if I, I took it off and kept it in my pocket while I walked around the streets of Las Vegas all weekend. That's not going to bother her. It's just a symbol. Or if we got in a fight. I left it on the counter. I walked out the door. 
that's not going to hurt her because it's just a symbol. But none of us believes any of that because we all understand very deeply the power of symbols and the truth that surrounds them. They are inherently connected to very real things. And this symbol, baptism, is not an exception. It is inherently connected to something very real. Yes, it is a symbol of our faith, but it's not just a symbol of faith. It's also a symbol of our union. You may have noticed in this passage and in this discussion of baptism, faith has come up very little. It's all about union. This union with Christ in his death. As Paul said in verse 7, I am crucified alongside Christ. We're united with him in that death. We're united with him in that burial. And praise God, we are united with him in that resurrection where we breathe anew into the newness of life. We are united with him in being set free from the power of sin and answering to the authority of God the Father alone. It is a powerful, necessary union that this sacrament and this symbol represents and that it is inherently connected to. So maybe the question we ought to be asking ourselves is not, do I have to be baptized? Why wouldn't I want to be baptized and experience this beautiful gift that God has given us? But there's even something more immediately significant about baptism. It's signing day. It's the day on the calendar that happens in space and time that we can point to and say, that's the day when I died and came back to life. That's the day when I stopped being in Adam and I started being in Christ. And we need that day, guys, because this game of life is not easy. There are plenty of things to discourage us, to trip us up. There is plenty of temptation to entangle and ensnare our feet that cause questions of, have I sinned beyond grace? Does God still want me? Am I still on the team? There's plenty of things that happen in life that cause us to question God's good intentions. I buried a 16-month-old baby this week, and the questions that people had surrounding that, all of them valid and understandable, all of them hard, all of them discouraging. There are no shortage of obstacles to trip us up and to foul us in this game. And we need something tangible to point to and to look at and remember. Remember what happened. Yes, maybe I was on Team Adam. Maybe I was lost in sin and without hope. But something happened. I died in that grave. And I was raised into the newness of life in union with my Lord. And I believed it enough to make that commitment and to take that stand and to say, I would rather die with him than live under the tyranny of this baloney anymore. And if I believed it then, why don't I still believe it now? Is it worth believing now? Is it worth being encouraged by that signing day, that moment that means so much, that point on the calendar that we can point to and say, this made me different somehow. This changed everything. We need a day like that, guys. October 8th, 1995. Salem, Illinois, First Christian Church, somewhere around 11.45 a.m. was my day when I died and was raised to the newness of life.
when I signed on the dotted line and everything changed. And that day comes to mean more and more to me the longer I play this game. What's your day? What was your signing day? Could be today. There's a connection card on the back of the seat in front of you. And if you want to sign and join this team and breathe in the newness of life that comes through Christ, I want to encourage you, take that card out. Let us know. We will be in touch. We will talk about Jesus. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to give our life to him? What does it mean to trust the gospel and to call him Savior and Lord? I would love it, honestly, if we could make that decision today. But of all the days, our baptistry is broken. (laughs) So we will push pause on that. But we want to have that conversation at least. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this wonderful symbol and this sacrament and this mystery that we call baptism. We thank you for what happens in those waters, not because of the water, not because of an act, but because of the mysterious power you choose to enact as a response to this faith that we demonstrate by becoming one with Christ in union of death and resurrection. And Lord, as we go about this life, I pray that union would become more apparent and more significant in our lives. That we would look to the day that we died to sin and realize we no longer have to call it master. That we are free to choose you to resist temptation. I pray that we look to the day we are raised with Christ and we find hope and assurance and confidence that as surely as he lives, we too live with him. But most of all, Father, if there is wrestling in our hearts and our minds, I pray that you would step in, that you would reveal your truth and your love and the beauty that we call the gospel, that we would sign today. Father, we praise you for your goodness. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.